0: um it was being given the opportunity to figure a lot of it out you know when i went fishing in that particular spot on the creek where the water would be there and the fish and i didn't have my parents sitting there watching over my shoulder it was more like me with the rod and whatever bucket of worms so it was you know setting up the framework the foundation and so letting me kind of figure out some of the stuff on my own as well i think you have to have some of that self-exploration because if you you know, to put it into current terms, if a fisherman, if an angler explores, experiments, figures out a fishing spot, or how to catch fish at this spot, or when the fish are at a certain spot, if they invest that intellect and, and emotion, then they're more likely to transfer that further into their fishing, or even as they help teach other people. is makes people more uh, conservation-oriented, right? because they understand how things work, um, what happens if you change how things work? There's a, there's an intellectual and an emotional investment in that.
1: Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine and thank you for listening to the captain's collective podcast brought to you by skinny water culture, Hell's Bay boat works, turtle box, audio Traeger grills, Costa sunglasses and Orvis fly fishing. A genuine love for the outdoors is always paired with a deep desire to truly understand it, to answer the question of why, and to understand how we can best move forward. For the past 30 years, this has been Aaron Adams' focus. Aaron is the director of science and conservation at the Bonefish Tarpon Trust, as well as a professor at the Florida Atlantic University. And more importantly, Aaron is a passionate fly fisher and conservationist. Recently, I got the chance to spend the day with Aaron and to learn from someone whose writing, research, and work has been critical to our understanding of many shallow water species. In this podcast, we discuss Aaron's childhood fishing creeks in Maryland and Virginia, how science has helped him to be more in tune with what's happening on the flats around him, and how the little things of searching for fish can make a big difference. Aaron also shares about the importance of habitat and what he's working on with the Bonefish Tarpon Trust. We hope that you enjoy this podcast Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective.
0: He's out there. I'll say it's anything you choose. I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic.
1: Let everything else stop in the world and... Just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. If you have a fly rod in your hand, it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer start. Beep beep beep
0: beep, 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 No one else knew anything anyway, and you just
1: might definitely making it up if you are going along. But. So what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is, like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning let So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's going to be. Well, hey, Aaron, thanks so much for hanging out. I enjoyed lunch today. Got a chance to pick your brain and, and learn a lot with you over a beer and a fish bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm really excited just to talk about what you're doing with BTT and your background in the fishing community and, and what you've learned over the years. But before we dive into all that, I would love to hear just your story about how really all this began for you. Um, good question. Uh,
0: well, I started fishing as a kid. I was probably four years hmm. old. Um, my dad, my parents got me into fishing and that was in, uh, in Maryland where I grew up. Hmm. And my first fishing, uh, we'd go on camping trips on the Eastern shore of Virginia. i mean, excuse it. Me, Maryland first and then Virginia. And then, uh, I fished for like, like these upper tidal creeks for bluegill, hmm. um, bass. We'd fish farm ponds for the same, my first big fish. And I was only five years old. So it was a huge fish. It's like a six-pound catfish <laughs> that took a worm and a bobber and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, so that's how it started. And then growing up, I fished a lot, um, like skipping school kind of fishing. <laughs> um, and my dad and my uh, uncle were pretty hugely influential there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, and we can kind of circle back to this later. But you know, when I was growing up, when you learn to fish, you know, an, a parent or an uncle or brother or somebody taught you how to fish and along with how to fish catch fish was also a, a fishing etiquette mm-hmm. you know how to behave in the water how to treat the fish mm-hmm. um, where to run and not run and um, I think we've lost some of that mm-hmm. um, but in any case so as I grew up um, like fishing um, I just started naturally asking you know a lot of what's and
1: whys mm-hmm. and got very interested in the whole biology track yeah so as a kid are you? Five years old, catching catfish. Going, why did it eat this worm? I mean, what did it? No, it was it was it was even um,
0: uh, stranger than that. (laughs) Um, It was we're uh, fishing on uh, a tidal tidal creek um, on the eastern shore, of Maryland, and going to a spot, catching a lot of bluegill, Mm. and then going back, you know, the next day or eight hours later, and the water's all gone. Mm. You know, tides, right? And, you know, five-year-old kids are like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and so I, you know, without knowing anything about tides, I kind of watched and I figured out that, you know, water was coming and going and the fish would mm-hmm. move around. Um, so it's more of that kind of process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty interesting because it didn't take long to graduate away
1: from the worms mm-hmm. and, and to lures and that kind of stuff. It, and you said your your uncle and your dad were really critical in you beginning to fish when you think about that time of like, okay, you're figuring out tides on your own to some extent, like how did they kind of balance out teaching you things and then giving you space to figure out things for yourself? Um, they were, they were great. in that, you know,
0: teaching me enough and kind of keeping me from going off the rails too far. Mm -hmm. Um, but letting me kind of figure it out a lot on my own in between. Mm -hmm. So if we would go on Uh, fishing trips, you know, out in my uncle's boat or whatnot, Um, we'd be fishing and I'd make a steak and blow a big fish or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they use that as a teaching opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, well, if the fish goes under the boat, don't let him go on the boat, you know, walk around the boat kind of stuff, which, you know, if you haven't had a big fish on and it does that, you have no idea what's happening. Um, But then also I, you know, with that as the foundation, I explored a lot on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, hiking into streams and um, fishing local
1: lakes and ponds and that kind of stuff. Uh, sneaking on the golf courses. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think you and I were talking at lunch today, but, you know, there's kind of this balance where I was talking about my daughter's five. So it's kind of cool to hear you say mm-hmm. that you were five when you caught your first big fish. And I talked with you about how we're working mm-hmm. on her getting her first, you know, see it, cast it, fight it redfish she's caught redfish a couple different ways but not that way and it's interesting because like I don't want to push her too hard and I want to give her freedom you know to be able to find things that she likes and explore and do do things her own way what do you feel like was when you look back at that time like what do you feel like really was the most shaping element to you as a kid kind of falling in love with the outdoors for yourself
0: um it was being given the opportunity to figure a lot of it out so you know, when I went fishing in that particular spot on the creek where the where water would be there and the fish, and they wouldn't, um, you know, I didn't have my parents sitting there watching over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. It was more like me with the rod and whatever bucket of worms, um, and then going. They knew what spot I was going to, and I'd fish that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, setting up the framework, the foundation, and so letting me. Um, kind of figure out some of the stuff on my own as well. Mm-hmm. I think you have to have some of that self-exploration ex- because if you, you to put it into current terms, um, if, if, a, if a fisherman, if an angler um, explores, um, it, you know, experiments, figures out uh, a fishing spot or how to mm-hmm. catch fish at this spot or when the fish are a certain spot, if they invest that um, intellect and, and emotion then they're more likely to transfer that mm-hmm. you know, further into their fishing, or even as they help teach other people. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, experience um, is makes people more uh, conservation oriented because right? mm-hmm. they understand how things work, mm-hmm. um, what happens if you change how things work. There's a there's an intellectual and an emotional investment in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know, my my parents instilling that kind of um, experiential investigation type of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, helped kind of drive some of that asking later the what's and the why's. And that's what led me into the whole science side of things.
1: Yeah. I, I like the word that you used investment in it because it's kind of, I think that's a good word that a lot of people, that's what clicks for them when they really, really, really get the bug is that they they feel like they have some sort of connection, not their parents, not just because it's cool or not, but like they've made some sort of connection or to use your word investment into the the fishery or into the waters, or as a kid, you're probably not maybe you were, but <laughs> most kids probably aren't saying fishery, they're just it's their thing, it's fishing know? right, yeah, right, um I'm curious too, like when you were running around as a kid, were you always drawn to science I mean
0: uh yeah, I think I was, I mean, I didn't realize what that meant for a mm-hmm. long time. <laughs> But my mom was a teacher and my dad um, did sociological research. Mm-hmm. So there's, I think, a lot of that kind of um, just you know, naturally it's, it was part of you know, asking questions and learning and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess just naturally asking the questions, but in a, um, I don't know, more in-depth way than just wondering mm-hmm. and like a yes or no kind of thing and understanding yeah. that the answers aren't always the same. Right? If you think you get as soon as as soon as you think you have the permit figured out, they're going to tell you, you don't know the damn thing so it's the same thing you know with a science investigation mm-hmm. um, If you think you know the answer, then um, you know you're going to get kind of surprised
1: What was the moment for you where you realized you wanted to pursue working in the science field as a vocation um There really wasn't a moment mm-hmm. um
0: it's more of a, I don't know, not transition, but uh, just like, I don't know, a journey. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate that in um, in high school, especially I had some really good uh, biology teachers mm-hmm. um, who were pretty influential, um, you know, supportive, not like a lot of science is taught is memorize this and spit mm-hmm. that out. But it was much more of a, Uh, much more interactive learning experience a couple of brilliant teachers for sure Mm -hmm. and so that pushed me towards in that direction Mm -hmm. Um, and then working in the summers uh, in high school and in uh, college I worked for Maryland State Park System so there was some of that meshing of things so Mm -hmm. there wasn't a point it was more of a um, a growth from fishing into the science and then the science back to inform the fishing mm-hmm. um so it kind of became pretty circular pretty quickly mm-hmm. um but then even you know for years after you know college after college i worked for four years before i went back to graduate school the first time mm-hmm. then i worked for four years again before going back to get my phd mm-hmm. um more of a process not a not any one point um and i mean it's hard to explain but so the scientific method is all about that, asking questions and mm-hmm. hypotheses, and, but building upon previous knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so there's never really a, a, a point. You know, people talk about a eureka moment, mm-hmm. but any scientific discovery is built upon a lot of small steps bef- before there. Mm-hmm. It's not like people just showed up into a room and discovered something. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that goes into it. It's just like with fishing, right? You don't show up and, well, most people don't show up for the first time and, Stand up on a bow or wait out themselves even better and catch a twenty pound permit. Mm-hmm. You have to build the knowledge in order to get there, mm-hmm. and when you get there, you remember that moment. But there's a lot of stuff that went into that moment. Yeah, and so that's kind of my, you know, from fishing to science and back, and then now it's all just intermashed.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say like the tiny little steps because a lot of the people that I've met so far that I feel like really are are to use a common phrase fishy people. Um, they pay attention to all the little things, and then they do a bunch of little things, and they don't overlook those in order to f- be successful. And in that in that sense, I think they they think scientifically, even without probably saying you know that they do. For you, did you find that like as you were learning about the scientific method and you were learning about science, did you find that really helping you g- evolve as an angler? And in what ways? Oh, for sure. I think part some of that's just innate. Mm-hmm. um
0: being observational um but then a lot of it is learned mm-hmm. so even you know some fishing guides who have some of that innate uh, observation skill mm-hmm. um, they after five years guiding 10 years guiding that skill level isn't the same as when they started mm-hmm. they don't just know more they've learned about how to see more mm-hmm. on and interpret more um so yeah with with science it's um it's it's similar except it's you know considerably more intensive I guess you could say yeah um, but it becomes a it becomes a way of thought mm-hmm. so it's it's not as if it, you can you turn it on and off mm-hmm. um, it just becomes you know, a way that your brain processes things a lot of the
1: time yeah that makes sense and you know thinking of like observation and little things so my wife and I we've been learning how to perfect our pizza making. And it's been, um, it's been really fun. And, and one of the things that she had read when she was learning, she's been working on different dough recipes and that, that type of thing was she really liked the way that one author put it, that temperature and time are ingredients just as much as the flour, the yeast you use, the salt, all of that. And, you know, I remember being a kid making my own little pizzas, you know, with my family and stuff. And I never until that moment thought of time and temperature as an ingredient. And when we're talking about being observational in, on the water, you know, there's these little smaller ingredients that are actually, I mean, the time that you allow the dough to sit and how you allow the yeast, the temperature, you mix the water the yeast, all those things are actually really, really big deals. They just get overlooked a ton because they're, they, they're seemingly small let's, let's kind of create a scenario here. Let's say that me and you right now, we're, we're on a skiff and we're pushing out into a flat. And this is we're we're in a flat that we won't give any locations (laughs) in our metaphor, but we're on a, we're on a flat and we could be looking for a permit or bonefish or or tarpon. What are the little ingredients? What are the things that you're observing and looking at trying to figure out if we're in the right place? And well, I think there's a
0: I guess we'll start with a kind of big first. Mm-hmm. And that is, on the one hand, getting into the fish's zone is kind of like the ultimate zen, right? It's mm-hmm. then, it's what you see. It's, it, it's then, it's now. It's, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you get there, you also have to think about the bigger picture, about what happened to that fish five days ago. Mm-hmm. What was it like here four days ago? Um, was the temperature the same? Um, Was it windy? Was there a front that came through? Um, All those types of things influence what the fish is going to be doing on the day that we're fishing. Mm -hmm. So there are certain spots, for example, that if it's been super windy um, and extra low tides uh, for like the four or five days before we fish, I probably wouldn't fish it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that that extended period of what I would call bad conditions is going Mm -hmm. to push the fish somewhere else, do something different. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I find a lot of anglers don't really think about is mm-hmm. they're just thinking in the moment, I saw this fish do that and I did mm-hmm. this cast and a lot of times that works, but some of the times, for example, you might find bone fish are just turned off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that they're being fished, they're just totally turned off. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I think that's because, um, there's been some pretty dramatic, um, parametric pressure changes Mm -hmm. over the past four or five days and that just seems to put them off Mm -hmm. um but then so circling back then to the you know the kind of more zen of what's happening now Mm -hmm. yeah tide phase of course is pretty huge Mm -hmm. um if you can find a early rising tide that's always golden Mm -hmm. um water temperature is pretty big and it's not just water temperature today but compared to what it has been Mm -hmm. so right now we're we're doing this um podcast in Mm mid-January and here in central Florida really is our first um really strong cold front Mm -hmm. and so it's been cold a few nights it'll be cold a few nights more so the fish snook redfish etc they're going to push into their kind of some of their winter holes Mm -hmm. and it'll probably take them since this is the first front right it's not it's going to be changing their behavior because they've been warm for eight nine months now Mm -hmm. and this is our first time they're getting super cold um, so I'd fish for them differently. I probably won't fish for them for the next four or five days. Mm-hmm. Let it start to warm up and let them kind of hit the reset button. Mm-hmm. And then they'll go into their winter pattern. where they will go into deep holes at night when it gets cold and then come out on the flats to warm up mm-hmm. you know, during the day. But for the next few days, they won't be doing that. Mm-hmm. So there's all these different now and previous types of things that are always going through my head mm-hmm. you know, when um, approaching the day of fishing. But then, when, once you get onto the flat, mm-hmm. watching the fish behavior is huge. You know, to see if they're feeding on the bottom, or feeding like on shrimp, or you can tell, for example, with bonefish, you can get an idea if they're feeding on crabs or shrimp or suck, sucking worms out of the bottom mm-hmm. um, just by the way they're behaving. Mm-hmm. And that's going to influence the approach that you're going to take on the skiff, mm-hmm. the flies you're going to use, weighted, unweighted, all that type of stuff, um, or even with the habitats. So redfish, for example, a lot of times, you know, tailing redfish, you know, it's fantastic. But in a lot of places, the turtle grass are tailing in is so thick mm-hmm. that they're not going to see the fly unless it basically hits them on the nose and just mm-hmm. bounces right down the front of their face. So in those situations, um, I'll actually pull out a gurgler mm-hmm. and try and get that gurgler and pop it over top of them mm-hmm. like, it, like it's a shrimp. And they'll either love it and Smash it or take off like they're scared to no. death. Um, so all those things go into basically reading the flap, but also reading the fish. Mm-hmm. But also thinking about you know what got you to that point.
1: Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And you know, one of the things that I, I've met guys over the years who they don't keep a journal, they don't log anything. They just have been doing it so much, so consistently that you know they're just kind of in tune with it, and and they're it's almost second nature. Oh, it's been really windy this water is going to be clean, this isn't, you know, that type of thing. But for some people, and I mean, for most people, they can't be on the water every single day or every single fishable day. And it's almost like if you, if you ever learn something and then you don't come back to it every day, it's like it slips away, you know. It, it fades away in your memory and you just, you know, you're not as mentally sharp. So, I mean, you know, there's other people who are on the water every day. They use a journal. And then there's a lot of people who aren't on the water every day and they don't use a journal and they just don't ever retain or – or remember? What What are your tips for trying to remember and observe and write it down? Anything there? Yeah, I think a great thing about um, hiring a, a good
0: guide is they have the local knowledge. Mm-hmm. So they know exactly that. If it blows right out of the east, this bay is bad. If it blows right out of the west, that bay is bad, mm-hmm. um, which is hugely useful, right? Mm-hmm. If you just show up on your own, you don't know those things. You got a 50 50 shot of going to the wrong place. Mm-hmm. But if you understand, that whether it's a redfish up in the Big Bend area, or a redfish in Mosquito Lagoon, or in Charlotte Harbor and Florida Bay, mm-hmm. they have a certain suite of um, you know limitations on on how they're going to interact with their environment. Mm-hmm. And if you understand in general how they interact with different things, whether it's tide or water temperature or light or wave action. Um, for example, we were talking about at lunch, um, you know, if it's wavy, um, redfish usually won't tail. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're pansies. <laughs> mm-hmm. But bonefish, they don't care. I've seen bonefish tailing in the surf. Yeah. Um, they just don't care. Whereas redfish, if it gets choppy, they, just, they might still feed, but they won't tail. Mm. Understanding those kinds of things on um, a much broader level is hugely helpful because mm-hmm. if you understand, it's a stupid way to say it, but if you, under, if you can think like a fish... Mm-hmm. then you're more able to interpret um, any environment that you're in that has those fish in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if if you're like me, who's I've got um, periods of local knowledge of different places because I've moved around a bunch. Right? Mm-hmm. I grew up in Maryland, so I knew a lot of the lakes. I knew a lot of Chesapeake Bay. Um, lived in California, so I got to understand that system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Caribbean, so I've, a lot of different places. So... But none of them, for none of those, do I have, say, a you know thirty forty year time frame of experience, so mm-hmm. I know how things have changed and kind of shift with the local conditions. But because I understand how fish interact with their environment, I can take a lot of that information and apply it in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. So if you understand, for example, how a bonefish uses tides and flats um, to get on and off the flat. You know time of day, all those types of things, mm-hmm. and how you know low pressure versus a high pressure and onshore versus offshore wind affect water levels. If you understand those kinds of basics mm-hmm. you should be able to go to a spot and kind of get an idea of what the conditions are um and where most likely to find bone fish mm-hmm. um, and it's not going to be as good of course if if you're not you know fishing there all the time, yeah so for example. If you have a spot where you've had offshore wind for a few days, um, your favorite flat for bonefish is probably not going to have much water on it because it's all been pushed offshore. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking for that super skinny water way up against shore. It's probably not going to happen because the fish are going to be pushed farther off. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, it's been an onshore wind, you're probably going to have all the mangroves flooded and they're going to be way back up in the sticks. And so you might find them, but if you hook them, you're never going to land them Mm because they're going to wrap you up in the mangroves. And so those are just two real basic examples of using your knowledge of the conditions, what the conditions do to where you're fishing, and also how the fish react to them. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. Or a lot of times people will see a sand flat, think, "Oh, that's great for bonefish," and Mm -hmm. just go out walking, right? But there's a lot of complexity to that flat. It's not Mm -hmm. just it's not like a road. It's flat. There's all kinds of little troughs that come through there and holes and all those types of things. So. You know, a bonefish will come up onto a flat through one of those troughs. And it might only be three inches, four inches deeper than the flat around it. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the bone, bonefish's environment. So it interprets that it knows where all those troughs are. And that's mm-hmm. how it gets on and off to it, on and off the flat to the lowest possible water. Mm-hmm. So all those types of things, um, it it, just like anything else, if you're going to be good at something, mm-hmm. you have to study. And there's just no getting around it. Mm -hmm. And if you're a full-time guide, you're studying every day you're on the water, Mm -hmm. right? That's your job. If you're not a full-time guide and can't fish every day, um, then you've got to figure out other ways to study. Um, And some of it could be going with a guide and -hmm. just kind of soaking in all that knowledge and not just sitting on the bow and, you know, chatting with your buddy, but actually watching where the guide goes, paying Mm -hmm. attention to what the tides are, what the wind's doing, all those types of things um, help a lot. But also... And people don't do this anymore but read. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing that I've said so far is not already written down by people who are good anglers and good writers. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if you want to learn how to um, you know, fish for bonefish, Chico's book is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Kaufman's book is fantastic. Um, I mean, for most species we fish for, there's something out there that's written or spoken that can help you a ton. Mm-hmm. And it's absorbing that and then putting that into practice.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think that when you're talking about reading or there's a, I think a lot of a lot of anglers, what they want to do is they just they just kind of close their eyes and they throw a bunch of darts at the board, and then if something hits, then they'll go again and again and again until it doesn't hit, and then they'll restart the pattern, just start throwing darts everywhere. For you, like if you were going in a new area, how much? Would you be trying to look at, like, would you take, like, one bay and just be like, I want to try to find every pothole in this bay? Or would you be thinking broader than that, saying, I want to kind of take a 80-mile span here and, and really get some ge- general over 20,000-foot view knowledge and then work in? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, I do the big picture and then work my way down. Okay. Um, because you could go to that bay
0: and figure out all the nuances of that particular bay, but because of the tide cycle or the weather, there's not going to be any fish in that bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so yeah, that's that's the thing is to take the big picture view, figure out those major issues like mm-hmm. tide and weather, et cetera, et cetera, and then kind of hone in from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll move around. If it's a new spot, I'll move around a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, give myself like a 15-minute um, rule. If I come into an area, think I'm going to be seeing fish, and I do what I think is – best and I'm not saying fish in 15 minutes I move on um right because I, I don't have enough knowledge to say okay well this sometimes if this shoreline doesn't work they aren't here they're you know at that shoreline 50 yards away or out in this this mm-hmm. ridge you know 60 yards away um you could spend forever exploring that if you don't have local knowledge mm-hmm. so I just tend to move around a bunch and try and hit some of the spots I think will mm-hmm. work the best and then once I find a pattern then i kind of take fresh eye look at where i'm fishing and and try and replicate that pattern for that day
1: that's that's helpful for you do you do you have like field notes do, what is your or no. do you just keep it all in your head it's
0: all in my head sometimes i have to knock my head sideways but... <laughs> <laughs> like an old tv yeah. hit it a couple
1: times it's not working yeah and
0: yeah sometimes i'll go back to spots that i've fished a lot many years ago and mm-hmm. it might take me a little bit to um, you know get the memory Cells firing again but yeah um,
1: usually they they fire no when you talk about like you're getting a general idea of the area like let's say me and you were gonna go to a bay you've never been you're gonna look at a map you're gonna say I mean what, yeah what nowadays that yeah you can yeah. you
0: can pull up uh, Google Earth mm-hmm. and you know you can see a lot with Google Earth you can let's say we're gonna fish a, a marsh area for redfish mm-hmm. you can see where the creeks are the big creeks the little creeks little Creeklets, I call them, mm-hmm. um, and you look where the wa- water's moving, um, and that's gonna, you know, many ways influence where you're gonna find the redfish, right? If you're gonna fish the flood tide on redfish, not every marsh flat's as good as the other, mm-hmm. and but figuring out some of those flow patterns, where the edges are, those types of things, and the first level for that, yeah, looking at, looking at the a Google Earth, mm-hmm. <laughs> way back in it used
1: to be uh, nautical charts, yeah reading all the bathymetry lines on nautical charts and stuff yeah yeah I keep some charts if I'm going somewhere like I got some waterproof charts I'll throw on the boat just in just in case you know yeah just if, if you get a wild hair to go somewhere you hadn't been before or you want to do something uh, for you do you find um, that there's a with with technology coming into play you know you reference Google Earth like that's been something that over the years has been hit on on here you know a lot of people wish that maps never existed But then again, we have them like for you, like you talked about an etiquette. There's an etiquette when you're a kid. What, what do you feel like etiquette looks like when you're, when you're coming into a new fishery or I guess probably no, no limitations on it. Like what, what about etiquette do you feel like is missing right now? A lot of different levels. (laughs) Yeah. I think the, the immediacy
0: of stuff like Google Earth Mm -hmm. or even more so, um, you know, the The on-boat electronics um, makes it easy to skip a lot of the steps Mm -hmm. that I just went through, right? So it's not just, oh, that looks like a cool place. Let's go there. Um, It's all the other stuff that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And understanding, for example, if you think, you know, a certain sandbar is a good spot, what's the best way to approach that sandbar? You know, how are the fish going to be moving to get up to that sandbar? And so if you think, oh, let's just run up this trough to get to the sandbar, mm-hmm. and you're just using Google Earth, you could be running over all the fish that are co- going to that sandbar. Mm-hmm. And then you're basically blowing everything out. Um, and that's part of the local knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times with the immediacy of all of our the maps and the social media and everything else, um, people don't slow down enough. So it, it doesn't hurt um, to go slowly. Mm-hmm. For example, I've got... Um, I just have a 30 horse on my skiff, my top speed at, you know, cranked all the way. is like 21 knots, Mm -hmm. right? And I see these guys go by with 120s on a flats boat going 70 miles an hour. um, And they're missing a lot because they're just going from spot to spot. And so they're not, by getting that immediacy of all the electronics, they're not really understanding the water and the processes that are making everything work. They're just Mm -hmm. going from spot to spot. And they're also running over a lot of fish when they're going to those spots. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens probably the worst um, in the tarpon fishery. Although for redfish, it's getting pretty bad too. Mm-hmm. So guys will say, oh, that looks a great sandbar. And they run to it. But what they don't understand is they probably ran over a lot of fish when they were getting there because they didn't spend the time on the water, not just looking at maps, but on mm-hmm. the water, figuring out what the travel routes of the fish are. Mm-hmm. Um, And you're not gonna be able to see that from just looking at a Google Earth image. It'll Mm -hmm. help, but it's not gonna be everything. And if you blow, it's almost like, I mean, it's almost like cheating. Like if you cheat to pass the test, Mm -hmm. you know how to pass the test. Or if you cheat to steal somebody's idea to make a new fishing reel, let's say, you know how to make that fishing reel, but you don't know the mistakes that were made to get to that point. Mm -hmm. And so, as you go through your manufacturing process, there's a pretty good chance that um, you're going to make mistakes because you don't know that those were the Mm -hmm. mistakes made to get to the final product. Mm -hmm. And I think with the immediacy of the electronics, that's happening a lot. So, Mm -hmm. for example, in in Charlotte Harbor, Southwest Florida, um, redfish, there's large areas where they do not tail because they get run over so much by people running from spot to spot. Mm -hmm. And they're literally running over a fish. I mean, I and and friends and guides over there have found redfish dead with prop scars. So because people are so interested in getting to a spot Mm -hmm. that they're not actually seeing um, the areas that they're running over, and they're destroying those areas. Mm -hmm. So it got bad enough in Pine Island Sound in, this is before 2010, that I didn't even look for tailing redfish during the day. I would focus exclusively in the summer, um, look for low tides <clears throat> after six o'clock and fish that low tide because most of the boats were in by three, mm-hmm. right? And the redfish, I think they changed their behavior patterns and I'd go out in my, my skiff or my kayak or whatnot <clears throat> and there'd be tailing redfish all over the place mm-hmm. and nobody else out there fishing for them mm-hmm. because they altered their behavior and it, Ten years prior to that, you could go out during the middle of the day, low tide, and see the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of that immediacy is causing us to run over a large portion of our fishery, mm-hmm. um, which hurts everything.
1: Yeah, t- something that kind of ties to that that you mentioned to me earlier was you know if you take a fish and you move them to a totally different place, um, even if they they survive the tr- you know the the transplant, for lack of a better phrase, you know they don't have a familiarity with the ecosystem and they're less likely to be effective at hiding from predators and et cetera, et cetera. And we were kind of having a conversation cause I was wondering like, sometimes with animals, we're not sure how much like us are they as far as like, is this redfish? scarred from a traumatic experience at a young age and you know going to redfish counseling you know and you know i'll never go to docks again you know and um you know i remember being a kid and watching that that show spongebob squarepants and there's like an episode where you know the the kid fish are going to the where all the hooks are and they're playing with hooks and the parents are like don't do that you know and don't mess with the hooks and you know, but like you're, you're talking about a bone fish coming up on a flat has a familiarity with where the potholes are. And, you know, th- there's an, a, there's a sense of memory or a sense of familiarity with a fish to an area. Talk to me about like, in what, in what, how far does that extent go? Like, do fish have good memories? Are they, I mean, you're talking about patterns changing because of, you know, I understand that, but from what you've seen in science, how, how, what's the depth of that? That's a good question
0: because you can't really ask a fish, right? Figure out what it remembers. You have to um, study its movements. Mm -hmm. So bonefish, as an example, have a pretty small home range. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the fish that we tag and then recapture are recaptured on the same flat Mm -hmm. or pretty close to it. Uh, Redfish typically have a small home range until they get immature and then migrate out into the ocean or the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. But even then, there's... Like for a fish that spawn off at of Tampa Bay, for example, there's like a 90% fidelity rate. Like they go back to the same spot. Mm-hmm. And we found the same thing for snook. Um, so yeah, that familiarity, they develop those, those patterns for, for, sure, for sure, you know, spatial. Mm-hmm. Bonefish, they'll migrate. See, we've tracked them migrating 60, 70, 80 miles from their home flat to spawn. Mm-hmm. And they go back to the same spot to spawn and they can find their way home. Mm-hmm. Right, you go into a grocery store and you come out and you can't remember where you parked <laughs> so there's that type of spatial um, imprinting that occurs mm-hmm. as far as like behavioral stuff yeah I think they'll adjust their behavior based on um, stimuli like getting run over by a boat mm-hmm. over and over again you know redfish on the flats that changes their behavior for sure um, tarpon I've seen the same type of thing fishing pressure they shift kind of where their migration is mm-hmm. Uh, movements are on the other hand i've seen tarpon hang out on the edges of um, intracoastal waterway and when a big yacht comes through you see the tarpon busting behind it because it stirred up all the bait right so they learned on the other side of that too mm-hmm. i mean as far as you know being their reaction to being hooked um, um i mean a great example is northern pike right i personally and you hear a lot of stories like this mm-hmm. have lost a fly to a pike it broke off or he cut me off I tie on another fly, and five minutes later, I catch that same fish. It still has the fly in its mouth, mm-hmm. right? So that's either not a much of a memory yeah, here. I just yeah. don't care. But even with you know our marker capture studies, um, we've had fish caught two days after we've tagged them, mm-hmm. you know, two years after we've tagged them. Um, I've noticed with tarpon when they first show up in the spring, um, they've mostly forgotten the previous year because mm-hmm. um, the same you know the colors work so you mm-hmm. pick your favorite color early in the season it probably works mm-hmm. as the season goes on if they're seeing a lot of that color that pattern not so much mm-hmm. um you know alter the behavior but that makes sense right if you go out and you see um a hornet's nest you don't know what it is and you poke it and you get stung mm-hmm. you probably don't hit it again yeah um and for a long time you see every single hornet's nest around but after some time you know you haven't been stung in a while and the hornet's nest are still there but you're not conscious that they're there Mm. so I think there's a lot of that type of um, Mm -hmm. modification as well but as far as memory and fish good question but their brains in general aren't set up the same way as ours Mm -hmm. they're the different proportions of the um hemispheres and different functions functioning portions of the brain are 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 different Mm -hmm. um not a whole lot of cognition there relative to you know
1: people sure no, and no, you know, um, if anybody's listening to this and they want to even dive more into some of those types of questions, I thought April Voki did a great job, and I'll put a link to her podcast in this podcast. So we got a podcast within a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to uh, totally recreate that entire podcast, but you know, now you work with BTT, and um, kind of in a broad level, you know, migration is what you guys, what I feel like on the street, most people talk about BTT you know, studying migration. But give me the, the big picture. Here's what we're primarily studying and looking at. And then here is uh, what we're, we're doing from an activism standpoint.
0: Um, so one of the things I think that's different about BTT is, although there are other science-based controvers- conservation organizations, we um, specifically uh, identify... And fund or conduct research to address um, particular conservation needs or, or threats. Mm-hmm. So, from an academic standpoint, say you know my position at university, um, it's a lot. It's, it's it's a lot of it's a focus on new knowledge, mm-hmm. which is great. We take the extra step where we take that um, academically driven um, pursuit of knowledge and. Um, focus it on specific conservation needs Mm -hmm. in our view the if if the system that supports the fisheries is healthy the fisheries are going to be healthy Mm -hmm. and so at at its most basic we are trying to understand uh, what it is that the fish need in order to have a healthy population Mm -hmm. which habitat types which locations what type of water quality um you know all of our fish spawn in the open ocean, and their larvae are transported around by ocean currents. We need to understand what those current patterns are, mm-hmm. so we know which places are are more likely to be connected. So, for example, a certain portion of the the bonefish larvae and then juveniles that are coming into the Florida Keys, are coming from Southwest Cuba, Mexico, Belize, mm-hmm. and so we have to understand that to create a kind of a regional management approach for bonefish. So. Our biggest focus is on understanding those ecosystem needs, and it all goes down to habitat and water quality. If the fish have enough healthy habitat Mm -hmm. and have appropriate water quality, and water, of course, is the most important habitat, then the populations will be fine. Mm -hmm. We're fortunate relative to other conservation organizations that for the most part our species are catch and release. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to also deal with the problem of overfishing. In some places, fishing is an issue, but mostly not. Mm-hmm. And so we can focus on those habitat and water issues. And so we end up taking that information. And in Florida, for example, right now, we have um, a lot of irons in the fire on mm-hmm. the habitat and water side. Mm-hmm. So in Florida, we have a, um, an initiative called Fix Our Water, and it's focused uh, on... Things as basic as wastewater infrastructure, you know, sewage treatment, mm-hmm. um, septic systems, for the most part, um, in coastal Florida, aren't effective. So we're basically pumping all kinds of nutrients into the estuaries, which mm-hmm. is causing algae blooms and seagrass die-offs. So we've got to fix those types of things, in order to in order to fix our fisheries. Mm-hmm. And you know, most of the times, if you're on the water fishing and even if you see a plankton bloom, you're not going to associate it with you know, failing sewage treatment plant or septic systems that are failing, those types of things. But that's where the science has led us, and so that in Florida, that's like our biggest thing mm-hmm. is fixing the water. If we don't fix the water, then nothing else. Regulations don't matter. You know, harvest, no harvest, all that kind of stuff just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is, a lot of the information we're gathering is focused on habitat, and unfortunately. Fisheries management doesn't um, account for habitat. Mm Not kind of, sort of, but doesn't. Mm -hmm. So fisheries, let's say uh, you like to fish for snook in Florida or redfish. Mm -hmm. The management for those species is based on a stock assessment. And the stock assessment comes from they'll try and estimate how many fish are harvested. Um, They'll go out and get fish on their own and they'll see how fast they're growing, what the age structure of the population is, those types of things. And they'll use that to estimate population size and then estimate how many fish can be harvested mm. and still maintain a healthy population right that whole description of fisheries management didn't include habitat it didn't include water quality because they are not uh, the system for fisheries management stock assessment is not um in any way associated with habitat and mm. water quality you know the whole stock assessment approach was uh, kind of created 150 years ago just mm totally worried about don't over harvest the fish yeah the habitats in the water are what are the factory that creates the fish and Mm -hmm. so we're pushing very hard in florida to um, change that paradigm Mm -hmm. and it's not um little tweaks to what we have now Um, i really think it's a it's a a full paradigm shift Mm -hmm. we have to have a whole scale way of changing how we manage our fisheries Mm -hmm. Um, because if we continue to lose habitats in florida um, and get more and more bo- bad water quality. It doesn't matter what FWC does to regulate the fisheries. Mm. Um, it's just not going to be enough. Uh, and, and and in my mind, that's that's pretty huge. Mm-hmm. And I think time is running short. I don't think it's something we can say, oh, well, this is a 20-year program. It has to be more like a five-year program.
1: And mm. uh, even kind of uh, another, I guess, illustration of what you're talking about is, you know, it'll almost be like having a, you know, financial assessment where you're not looking at the income, you know, the thing that's generating the money, you're just looking at the spending, you know, the, if the harvesting is the spending yep. And the income generation is the habitat where fish are able to grow up to right. be one day caught. Whatever. Right.
0: So if you think about Florida and, you know, the same can be said of a lot of other places, and I'll circle back to that mm-hmm. comment in a second. Um, Florida's Already lost what 50% of its mangroves, mm-hmm. more than 2 million acres of wetlands, millions of acres of seagrass. And those are all the habitats that are essential for the fish we like to fish for. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, you know, everybody knows about the water quality declines uh, with too many nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, we're finding a lot of contaminants like pharmaceuticals in fish. Um, if you think about habitat being the main controlling factor on fish population size. Mm -hmm. If we've already lost, give or take, 50% of the habitats our fish depend on, Mm -hmm. even if we stop fishing today, I can't see us ever having the same population sizes of pick your favorite species Mm -hmm. that we had 100 years ago because there's not as much habitat. Mm -hmm. So that means that we have to be even more adamant about protecting what we have and restoring what we can Mm -hmm. um, to give those fish populations uh, the best chance they have. And so instead of you know and I say this as an angler instead of us complaining to FWC about um, fishery closures or harvest limitations or increases in the minimum size of fish we have to instead prioritize habitat and water. Mm-hmm. Because if we have healthy habitats and healthy water the fish populations will be larger mm-hmm. which means that the regulations that people don't like can be lessened. But the only way that FWC has to address declines in fisheries pop- fish populations is mm-hmm. more regulations on the fishermen, right? They don't manage habitat. Um, they should. Mm-hmm. DEP manages habitat. And there's not a whole lot of um, interaction on that fish habitat type mm-hmm. of thing. So as anglers are in our own self-interest, um, we need to drop this whole complaint about fisheries regulations, how many fish I can keep and focus on the reasons that there aren't as many fish we can keep. And that's all about habitat. Mm -hmm. Um, and that might not be obvious to some, it is to other, to, to some people, but not others, Mm -hmm. but that's really gotta be the focus.
1: And it diverts our energy because if you have, you know, you already, people who are aware of this and who like fishing and you know, you like fishing and you want to be involved in any type of regulation change or any type of politics, for lack of a better phrase, you know, that's already a segment of people, but it diverts the energy because if you're over here and you're arguing about limits and slots and catch and release, you know, you got half focus on their energy there. And then the other half are focusing more on the environment. You're not, you're you're only getting 50% of the effective effort. And then, you know, that's not even to start with talking about how do you get everyday people who don't like fishing involved in the fight. One of the things that you were talking to me about earlier that I thought was really interesting too is I think one of the big culprits or the one of the big I shouldn't even say culprits, one of the big controversies is somebody coming in and saying, "Well, I just caught X amount of fish. You know, there's plenty of fish over here. You know, and you just people are just wanting to change things, regulate things." You had a term for it. Could you share a little bit more about that? How it can kind of be impacted by people's anecdotes? Yeah, I mean it's. There's a, there's a term um, called hyperstability.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's say you are um, fishing in a, an area, um, let's say like Sebastian Inlet, for example, mm-hmm. and you're fishing for snook, um, which gather there to spawn. Mm-hmm. Let's say there's 10,000 snook there, right? And you have 20 people fishing. No matter how hard they fish, they can only catch a certain number of snook in a day, let's say a couple hundred. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, there's... 8,000 snook and then 6,000 snook, they can still only catch 200 snook. And until the number of snook there in total, the total population gets to such a low number that they can't catch 200, they can only catch 150, then 100. Mm -hmm. That means the population has shrunken so much that it's already kind of too late. The horse is way out of the barn Mm -hmm. and across the field. And that's called hyperstability because it seems like the the fish population is stable because your catch rates are the same but the population's actually crashing. Mm -hmm. And you don't notice it until the crash goes below your ability to catch your 200 fish. Mm -hmm. And by the time there's only 150 fish left, and because that's all you can catch, um, you're kind of done. It's it's too late. And so hyperstability is a big problem. Mm -hmm. Another big problem, though, is is what's termed a sliding historical baseline. And that basically is um, a term for your sense of history of a place is only as as um, long as um, your time at that place, mm-hmm. right? So I've been in the Indian River Lagoon now for, what, 10 years. And so the farthest I can go back, as far as having a good historical reference for, for here, is 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so what I think is, for here, good or bad fishing, is based on that 10-year time frame. Mm-hmm. Now, if I talk to someone who's been fishing here for 40 years, they're going to have a different historical baseline. And as that baseline you know, perpetually moves closer and closer to now, Mm -hmm. our interpretation of what is good fishing, that that standard, that bar to Mm -hmm. achieve also declines, right? So if if I talk to a guide um, that I know has been fishing in this area for 40 years Mm -hmm. plus about what's a good day fishing, and he doesn't think about now but just thinks about 40 years ago, the bar is pretty high, Mm -hmm. you know, if I talk to him about now what's a good day fishing, it's like if he could take his historical self from 40 years ago mm-hmm. and plop him into today, there's a good chance that he wouldn't fish anymore mm. because the 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 standard for a good day of fishing is so much so much lower, mm. or the fact that he has to cover a lot more water now just to find water clean enough to sight fish. Mm-hmm. So that sliding historical baselines is is a challenge too because as people move around or younger people come in, it's not their fault. They just yeah. don't have that baseline. And so their standards for what's good um, just keep
1: getting lower and lower. Yeah. Interesting com- compounded on top of that is you know, the debate the the in sports around how would Babe Ruth play now? You know, And it's right. like, in the same way, you have guys catching less fish on that shifting baseline who, if you were to take them... And mm-hmm. drop them back with the same technology, knowledge, and gear. Right. It would probably just be oh, mind blowing. Just mind blowing because yeah. if you have somebody who has access to the internet, access to maps, access to tons of published literature, um, tons of instructional high-tech gear, f- quieter, faster, shallower boats, GPS and sonar, and all <laughs> you know. I mean, they're going to yeah. catch more, whatever species. They're going to catch more fish too. So you might have right. somebody who is really really gifted and talented and putting in time catching fish and and, you know where back in the day just almost everybody who launched a boat could go out and catch x amount of fish nowadays it's like well there still might be somebody catching that amount of fish because they have yeah they're just the michael jordan of that area for like (laughs) (laughs) or they've got the the lamborghini instead of the old vw bug yeah but i think that's yeah i think that's really interesting i've I've yet to find somebody who, I mean, you hear things about like seagrass recovery in Tampa Bay, you know, and you, you hear about different, uh, different kind of small victories in, in conservation and science. But for the most part, I don't think there's anybody going, no, nah, fishing in general is better now than it, than it's ever been, you know? And, uh, that's definitely, I think, I think, uh, something that is common across the board.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, but the, the, Encouraging thing is that that's that downward slide is not predetermined. You know, we, mm-hmm. we can fix a lot of this if we prioritize fixing the systems that the fish depend on. Mm-hmm. So if if you could you know wave your magic wand and mm-hmm. fix the water quality issue and fix the habitat loss issue, um, then you're going to have your fish populations come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you know that whole standard. Of what's a good fishing day in that that bar raises again, so I think it's important to not um, get too you know emotionally down, mm-hmm. even though there's you know a lot of frustration. It's I think the big thing is to realize you know that we can fix this mm-hmm. if if we want to fix it, mm-hmm. um, and so to me that's really encouraging. Um, it just it just means people have to. Um, you know, look at themselves in the mirror in the morning one day and say, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of this crap. Um, I want to fix it mm-hmm. so that, you know, 10 years from now, I can actually go out and have one of those days that, you know, my dad or my granddad told me about. Mm-hmm. So it's achievable. Um, you know, a good example uh, was striped bass, right? As I was growing up in the Chesapeake Bay area, Bay area in the 70s, uh, striped bass population just crashed. Um, so much so that they moratorium on all harvests for five years. Which was great, necessary, Mm -hmm. but they also got lucky with weather and a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, damn if the population didn't come back. So that by the um, mid late 90s, um, the striper population was actually in really good shape. Um, And so that was a success story for Mm -hmm. for some time. But then, since then, unfortunately, the management has kind of slipped back into its old ways. And now we have the fisheries declining again. Mm but that's just a really good example of if we put our minds to fixing the, the root causes of, mm-hmm. of these issues that are affecting our fisheries, we can, we can address it. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, putting our minds to it and it's not sexy. Um, but you know, making sure our politicians, um, don't just, you know, say things cause they think it sounds good, but they actually follow through. Mm. Um, and it's a democracy, so we elect them. Mm-hmm. So if we don't like what they're doing, you know, go look in the mirror because we're the ones who are letting them stay there. Mm-hmm. But I th- also think it's Im- important that you know, it's not just fishing. Um, the fish that we're talking about rely on the same thing, clean air, healthy habitats that people who don't fish do. Mm-hmm. So people who don't fish, they're impacted by the harmful algal blooms, the toxic algae blooms. Mm-hmm. Just ask somebody on the west coast of Florida about red tide. Mm -hmm. You know, it not only kills a lot of fish, it kills the economy, Causes a lot of health problems. Mm -hmm. When we get the blue green algae blooms, Southeast and Southwest Florida, um, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the blue green algae, um, has neurotoxins in it. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it has severe healthish health consequences. Yeah. Um, and you know, people, um, are eating some of those fish in the fresh water. So it's not like it's just the fish. Mm -hmm. Um, It applies to us as well.
1: Um, we just have to make it a priority um, to make it more livable for them and for us. Yeah, and I think on top of that, the the decision-making metric that is, okay, well, why don't people care about habitat? Why are they not regulating this thing? Why is this not a conversation? I mean, the, the downside the, or the back end of that is it's about money and it's about making money or tearing stuff down. It's a the whole mindset that allows – like, the, you know, this loss is everyone's loss because the mindset that's creating it will create other things in our world outside of it. We happen to be talking about fish and habitat. But the, that same mindset, it's not like uh, that that's going to stop there. I mean, it's going it's to push on into everything because if our mindset, you know, to, to use Leopold's old, old adage, you know, to move from, you know, conqueror to steward, if we're always about conquering much money tear it down rip it you know rip it down build it up doesn't matter what the impact is it's just about getting what we want that mindset's going to eventually even if you don't like fishing it's eventually going to hit you cuz they're going to they're going to do something they're going to do something in your backyard or in your life or with the water you drink or the food you eat or fill in the blank that it's going to come full circle
0: oh yeah it it already is right i mean if you live in Low-lying uh, islands, are not even um, Annapolis, Maryland, has severe issues at high tide now. They have flooded streets. Mm-hmm. You know That's because of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, parts of St. Petersburg, Miami Beach, they're underwater at, at high tides. Never used to happen. And that's because of climate change. So it's already happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a short-term, long-term mentality. So short-term is to make as much money as you can now and you know, whatever happens later long term is is thinking more about, yeah you can still have the economic activity, but let's make it um, you know a longer term benefit mm-hmm. it's you've heard the term um you know um, paying it forward, doing mm-hmm. a good deed what's happening a lot it has been happening for quite some time is people have been expensing it forward they've been doing things knowing full well that at some point you know the the bill's going to come due um, and they're just more concerned that it doesn't come due for them now than pushing it off on somebody else. So they're Mm -hmm. expensing a lot of that activity forward. Mm. And it's frustrating too, because the recreational saltwater fishery in Florida has an annual economic impact of like nine and a half billion dollars. It's huge. It's larger than a lot of other um, portions of the economy in Florida. Mm -hmm. Yet the factory that's creating that product worth nearly $10 billion um, is not being maintained. And so, at some point, that assembly line is just going to. Well, in some places, it already is broken. Mm-hmm. But at some point, it's going to become you can't repair it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the that's the frustration. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've been talking about a lot of different things. So we started talking about the stuff that excites me, which is the fishing mm-hmm. and the science. And now we're talking about the conservation, and that's what drives me. Right, that's mm-hmm. what keeps me doing this stuff that can be extremely frustrating. Um, but In order for me to, from a totally selfish perspective, in order for me to have that excitement of the fishing, I need to have the drive of the conservation Mm. because at some point, I'm not going to have the opportunity for the fishing excitement. Mm. Um, And that's something that's, um, to some level, um, maybe with other excitement and Mm. drivers and whatnot, um, that's true for a lot of people. Mm. I think we just have to focus that um, to make sure that yeah, in ten years I can, you know, walk down, you know, a block and a half from Indian River Lagoon. But if I go down there right now, I can't see the bottom in a foot of water. I want that to be different. I want to be able to, like one of my best days, my best water days when I lived on uh, the Virgin Islands was in the morning. I went wading on these uh, back reef flats, caught a permit, um, and then that afternoon I went surfing for a couple hours. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to have that same kind of opportunity here Mm -hmm. where I can go surfing, I can go fishing and not have to worry about whether the water will be clean enough or there will be any seagrass, those types of things, those fundamental things and more worry about can I find the fish Mm -hmm. Um, or can I find the clean water in order to go surfing and not get you know, ear infection, those types of things. Um, And I don't think we should be settling for not being able to have those opportunities.
1: So that to me is like a big motivator. That's good. If, if you're good with it, I got a, a little list here of some rapid fire questions just to close out on just okay. for fun. In, in your mind, what makes a great angler? Patience and persistence. If you could go back and tell yourself at the very beginning of, you know, you're five years old, you just caught your first catfish, what life advice would you give yourself? wow, there's a lot of things you shouldn't do. (laughs) Um, uh, believe it or not, uh, fish more. What's the number one fishing mistake you see people make? Um, well, okay. For fly, fly
0: anglers, it's not putting in the time to, to learn how to cast. Hmm. Um, because if you can't get the fly in front of the fish, um, nothing else matters. I get all kinds of questions for people. I'm going on my first fish, trip for bonefish. What rod should I take? What shoes should I get? And I say, I don't. Know, none of that stuff matters. Um, you need to learn how to cast. Hmm. Um, so from a fly fishing perspective, and that that's true anywhere in the salt. If you can't, if you can't, you know, cast fifty feet, um, and most of the fish you catch will be closer than that. Mm-hmm. But if you can cast 50 feet while you're practicing, that's going to shrink to 30 feet when you're, yeah, the pressure's on. So for fly fishing, that's the biggest one. For overall fishing, um, it's that if people aren't um, investing the time to understand um, the system that you know is giving them all these opportunities. Mm.
1: What do you feel like's been the biggest win from BTT? God, we've had a lot.
0: I think the biggest win that comes to mind immediately is um, having real engagement um, from FWC and and DEP on on some of these habitat and water issues. Mm-hmm. In the Bahamas, it's getting um, some new national parks that specifically protect bonefish habitats. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I'd say it's raising the profile of this whole habitat. Um, conservation for sustainable mm-hmm. um, fishery. It's, I mean, I think that that mindset is uh, kind of percolating around the whole region, mm-hmm. right? Belize, Mexico to some extent, definitely Cuba. Mm-hmm. So I think there's more realization of that. And that enables um, people to take that as a foundation and go on their own, which mm-hmm. is great. Because the more people do that type of thing, the better it is for, for BTT mm-hmm. and everybody else.
1: In your life, who's been the most inspirational figure to you?
0: Well, there's a lot of them.
1: <laughs> um,
0: well, I mean, on the personal side, you know, my parents, of course, mm-hmm. you know, talked about my dad, uncle for fishing. On the professional side, um, with science, I've had a, a lot of um, really positive um, role models and, and, and mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, who not only you know shared guidance, but um, you know shared mistakes, mm-hmm. right? So other people wouldn't make them. Um, so I don't think I could really pin it down to to one. It's kind of like you ask, you know, what moment was it that you mm-hmm. you decided you're going to be a scientist or whatnot? Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe it's just that my mind doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not any one person. It's a combination. Mm-hmm. More like a, a, a a journey than a you know different destination for each chapter mm. um, and it's the same with you know fly fishing. I have a lot of good friends who've taught me a lot um, mm. you know like a, a many of them say if you're not all learning at the same time you're teaching you know then you're not doing it right mm. so a lot of that interaction with a
1: lot of different people um, yeah, yeah it's good advice. What is the the what is your favorite book from your bookshelf? Um,
0: I guess it it over overall probably be Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut. Hmm. Why is that? <laughs> because the whole premise is that um, humans can't handle their big brains, uh-huh. um, and I think that we're seeing a lot of that now with not understanding climate change and that type of stuff. Hmm. Um, it's, it's essentially about um, people, humans surviving a global catastrophe um, by, just by luck being on a cruise ship that goes to the Galapagos. And over time, they devolve mm-hmm. um, to be less brainy and more um, there. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut, pretty brilliant, sometimes mm-hmm. depressing writer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the one that comes to mind.
1: I know for a season of your life to help fund your fishing you were a commercial fly tire what did that season of life teach you or, or help you as you sit here today
0: um, well it helped pay the bills when my wife and I were in grad school mm-hmm. which was always good um, it filled uh, we were living up in Boston area at the time and so it filled the, the dark days of winter mm-hmm. <laughs> right where the sun really never goes Barely above the horizon, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Boy, that was depressing. Um, but what it taught me was um, the I had the science perspective of you know what what striped bass eat and those types of things. Mm-hmm. But you have to be able to sell the fly to the fisherman. Secondary is whether the fish likes it or not. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of learning that whole part of the process mm-hmm. to f- tie flies that appeal to the angler. Uh, and don't worry about whether or not they catch fish, because anglers just going to buy them if they look good. Hmm. It's kind of cynical, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but that's that. You know, that's how you sell flies.
1: Yeah. You know, some of the best flies out there um, look like crap. Well, that's the difference between a guide's flies and a shop's flies a lot of the time. Yeah. Because a guide's flies are to catch fish. You know, nobody. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people are going with a guide to catch fish. Yeah, you know, so that's a good that's a that's a great great way to put it. Well, see that, and there's a there's an interesting difference.
0: If you're trout fishing, and you go into a shop, they'll sell you certain flies, but those flies are specifically to imitate Mm -hmm. the prey that they know the trout eats. Mm -hmm. Right? When you go to a saltwater shop, it's more like you know you're shopping for cool sunglasses. Mm -hmm. But what flies working? Anglers don't go in there and say, "What are they eating?" Mm -hmm. Whereas a guide. doesn't just say all oh, this fly works. Mm. The guide is tying that fly and presenting that fly in a way and in a situation where it thinks it's eating a certain type of prey, mm. right? So the guide knows that, <clears throat> but overall for saltwater anglers, they, this saltwater angler community, <clears throat> excuse me, still hasn't made that leap to the trout fishing world where they're picking a fly for a
1: specific you know, prey imitation. Mm-hmm. My last question is if if, I, if we could give you a billboard that everybody had to look at every day mm-hmm. on their commute to whatever they're doing, and this is, uh, this is one I gave to your friend, Tom Rosenbauer. Uh, what are you putting on that billboard? Don't be a dick. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Think about other people mm. when you're out on the water, you know, think about if you're pulling along a flat, mm. Um, if you'd want somebody buzzing by you 50 yards away, um, I think there's less and less of that. Mm-hmm. So if people just thought about, <clears throat> um, better etiquette on the water, we would all be a lot better for it. Mm. That's my fishing side. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to share a philosophical side or, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not going to say what Tom said. That's for sure. Um, no, I guess on the, on the science side, conservation side, um, at Bill Bird, we would be look in the mirror and make a difference. Mm. Yeah. If you're not making a positive difference, um, then what the hell is the point? Mm.
1: That's good. Well, thank you so much. There's a lot we could dive into. Uh, but I appreciate you just for hanging out with me today and sitting down and giving us some time on the podcast.
0: Yeah, happy to do it. We need to have more beers next
1: time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy, this is The Captain's Collective.